Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, An Inhabitant of Carcosa by Ambrose Bierce. This was first published in the San Francisco newsletter, uh, December 25th, 1886. And um, I, I read this story a few years ago. I didn't notice how funny it was until recently. <laughs> Um, had you heard of this story previously? I had not, but um, I've read lots of other beers. Some of the things that um, where he's interested in people living through their perceptions, which is sort of what maybe is going on in this unusual story, most famously an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, um, I certainly wouldn't have thought of as funny. So I am interested to get your take on an inhabitant of Carcosa and also uh, your sense of why this is or isn't a Beersian kind of story. I think it is a, a completely Beersian kind of story. If, if it, it feels a little less uh, intimidating than some of his, his other stuff. I, I was telling my students how uh, when you read Bierce, he he likes to kind of fuck with you, um, trying to make you not know what's going on, and then and then he'll he'll he can give you a giant paragraph about what's what's not happening and what is happening, but you know sort of from an oblique angle, and then he'll give you a sentence that tells you what happened, right? Um, uh, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, right? Doesn't tell you what is actually happening at Owl Creek Bridge, and that's him playing with you. And the way that story structured is also playing with you here. I think it's a little more straightforward. Um, but there is a, a line in here right before, uh, maybe as he realizes it, we're supposed to realize it, what's going on, but maybe we should have a pricey of the story before we analyze it more. Um, yeah, at the surface level, uh, the story has uh, three parts. There's an opening paragraph, which is in quotes and has uh, quite archaic language for there be diverse sorts of death somewhere in the body remaineth and in some it vanisheth quite away with the spirit. And it goes on. We've got this very odd sounding old sort of language, highfalutin, mm -hmm. that basically asserts that uh, really there are two aspects to death, a physical death and a spiritual death, and it is wrong for us, we humans, to think that this is uh, necessarily a coincident uh, episode in the life of anyone, that maybe the spirit could die first, maybe the body could die first. Um, and we're told at the beginning of the second paragraph, pondering these words of Holly, uh, whom God rest, and questioning their full meaning as one who, having an intimation, yet doubts if there will be something behind, blah, 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 blah. So this guy, someone is thinking about what these words mean. The whole rest of the story, save a tiny paragraph at the end after a line, um, is this fellow thinking um, about what 
is going was happening to him mm-hmm. and what's happening to him is that he suddenly realizes that in the pondering of these words of holly um he's lost track of where he is in the world and he finds himself in a completely waste desolate infertile landscape things are gray odd things happen um no one seems to notice him when there are actual other apparently living creatures to be seen and he wonders how he's under this this enchantment um in the course of exploring this this strange domain he finds a headstone and when a wind blows the uh leaves off this ancient headstone he finds his own name uh, with his birth date and his death date and then the third part of the story is a line telling us that this is the report of someone whose name sounds vaguely arabic um, told through a particular medium so this is a report told by a spirit through a medium so the three parts this opening paragraph, a quotation from long ago, presumably from Holly, who may be Ali, uh, the first infallible imam, the son mm-hmm. of Muhammad. Um, then we have this long meditation by the fellow who maybe has died, but once was perhaps an inhabitant of Carcosa a city which itself is now gone in this new world. And then at the end, we're told where we get this report from. So that's that's the story. And mm-hmm. my question is, why do we care about this story? And if it's a joke, if, there, if it's a funny story, we may just care about it for its entertainment value. But I have a feeling that Beers is up to something more powerful here, as he was always in the Devil's Dictionary. Well, each of those definitions those cynical definitions uh, was meant, in fact, to poke at some human fallibility or uh, weakness, I should say, or some political um, outlandishness. Um, what is the point here? Is it entertainment? Is it something else? What do you think? Well, uh, when I first read it, I, I found it haunting. Um, and uh, I think it, it's it's far less mysterious once you have read it all the way through and you go back and read it again. You can see what he's doing much more clearly. But there's some there's some I think some very sort of laughing in the face of death kind of humor to it. But uh, I I do like your your referencing of the Devil's Dictionary and actually I think his you know Bierce uses a medium at the end of the story to frame it um, and that the the experiences here related are those of the ghost who's been conjured up by the medium um, which is is fun Bierce himself is famous for not believing in such things right yet writing many ghost stories and can such things be this story was once collected in that collection um, but I, I did pick out the de- uh, devil's dictionary definition of ghost, and I'd, I'd like to read that. And there's actually what's fun about it is, other than just having a definition, there's also a little poem that go that he's written that I think is uh, again a precy of this story. So here's the definition: ghost, noun, the outward and visible sign of an inward fear. 
which is fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's he's always you know in the devil's dictionary, the definitions are always um, cynical to the point and uh, humorous. Um, the little poem uh, goes like this: He saw a ghost. It occupied that dismal thing, the path that he was following. Before he'd time to stop and fly, an earthquake trifled with the eye that saw a ghost. He fell as fall the early good, unmoved and awful vision stood. The stars that danced before his ken, he wildly brushed away, and then he saw a post. Um, <laughs> now, when I was uh, a kid, I loved going hiking. Um, and the problem with hiking is that if you don't uh, start early enough in the day, you can't get very far. And so as I was hiking on the weekends, I would always try and get up early so that I could go farther and be back before uh, sundown. Um, but one, one time, I and my friends took it a little too far. Uh, we got up at around 4 a.m. <laughs> and... We're, uh, we met at the trailhead um, at about 4.15 and started up the trail, but we didn't get very far because ahead of us, uh, we all stopped in our tracks. And I said, do you see that? And my friends agreed that there was something there. And I said, I see a, a guy with a machete. <laughs> and, <laughs> and my friend said, I see a guy with an axe. And my third friend, I see a guy with a chainsaw, right? And we all agreed that we were not going to continue the hike. So we turned back very quickly from the trailhead and returned to our beds uh, separately. Um, <laughs> um, upon later uh, in the day, hiking up to the trailhead, um, we saw a rather large rock um, that would have, I think, very nicely reflected all of these images in the moonlight. Um, so the ghost that we saw here as it was a post. <laughs> um, and I thought, I thought that that was uh, sort of, uh, sort of gets me into the spirit of this story. Uh, oh wait, I just made a pun there. Um, but if you can see what I mean, that little, the fear that comes in thinking about death is is probably not to be taken too seriously. And although this story takes it quite seriously, um, I think there is some fun to be had, especially in that opening quote, because there's some funny lines in there. Uh, he says, In one kind of death the spirit also dieth, and this is this it hath been known to do while yet the body was in vigor for many years. So, this is a certain kind of death, right? Where the spirit is dead, but the body is alive. And I don't think, you know, he's, he's meaning in a vegetative state. It's just, you know, he's got a crappy job and he hates his life. <laughs> and, but then the final one, sometimes it is veritably attested, it dieth with the body. But after a season is raised up again in that place where the body did decay. And I think that that final line is is kind of, you know, another praisey for this whole story. But, yeah, I, I found it a lot more humorous upon subsequent re-readings. Because the, the, every, everybody around him, 
and I'm not just talking about the lynx and the owl and the wolves and the caveman or whatever kind of man that is, but also even the trees and the rocks and the grass are all in a conspiracy and they're all knowing what is to come, which is his revelation that, yeah, he's dead. And it's just kind of hilarious. <laughs> if I take, no jokes. If I take that view and I think mm-hmm. there's merit to it, it helps me understand the last line. That is, as I said, it's got three parts. The paragraph you just were quoting from the whole of the story, which is the the dawning recognition by the speaker of what this waste land is that he occupies. Um, and then the last line is. Such are the facts imparted by the medium Bayrol. Uh, by the spirit Hosaib Allah Robardin. God knows if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm sort of pronouncing it as if it were French, but yeah. um, because Robardin looks French, but and so does Bayrol, but uh, the name is probably supposed to be Arabic. Such are mm. the facts imparted by the medium. Now, I, I wondered, what are we to make of the word facts? You know, what is a fact in in reality, in our lives, in yours and mine? And what are facts in this story? Uh, if indeed each of the entries in the Devil's Dictionary is meant to be a satiric barb at something, and the humor behind that is the same humor that you are noticing in this story about death conjured where it probably doesn't really happen, um, then the last line actually explains perhaps why the story was written. Such mm-hmm. are the facts imparted by the medium. To use that word facts is to remind the reader that all of that hokum that mediums give is not factual at all. Mm-hmm. This is in, indeed a critique, a criticism an attempt to debunk spirituality. So that opening uh, pseudo quote from someone who may in fact have been um, an infallible imam saying that the body and the soul, uh, the body and the spirit die separately um, and not always coincidentally. um, That's a way of arguing against, in fact, at least one organized religion. We know that the religion is Islam because at one point in the main body of the story, the speaker, Hosaib, but he doesn't give his name himself, um, talks about thinking of his wives and children. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and when he walks away from Carcosa, he is out in a desert. He talks about the lynx, that's the first animal that he spots out there when he finally does see the occasional being. Um, and a lynx is, after all, a, a desert cat from from Africa um, or the, the Near East. So this is Islam, which is a stand-in, I think, for religion in general, uh, for Bierce. And the story is meant uh, not really to give us the shock, oh my goodness, he's been dead all these years, but rather to say, Really, people, you believe all that crap about he's been dead all these years? 
Well, it, it's funny because uh, the the territory seems very Californian to me. Uh, the, the lynx, the bobcat, the wolves. I mean, it could be anywhere, really. Um, the sun rises in the east. We know that in the story. He can, he's probably, uh, you know, he's on the earth because of the uh, the stars in the sky are similar to ours, right? They're named. And it has that. But um, it, it's also, you know, the ancient and famous city of Carcosa. This is the first mention of Carcosa. Not the last mention of Carcosa in, in fiction. But this is the first mention of Carcosa in fiction. And what makes it ancient and famous is the facts at the end of the story, right? Saying that this is a true story. Um, and what I, what is interesting to me is, is it is read mostly by people as a haunting horror, you know, sort of ghost story with, uh, you know, you've, you've read the King in Yellow collection, right? Yep. Uh, the, this comes up in there and there's another story, uh, Hathi, um, not Hathi, uh, Hatia the Shepherd, uh, has another um, god in there. We've got Halley, uh, right? People take it quite seriously, and they use it to uh, expand upon in in Lovecraft and and uh, Robert W. Chambers. Um, but ultimately, all of these guys, as far as I can tell, are, are you know they don't believe in any of this spirituality, but they love playing with it. And Bierce himself like Lovecraft, loved walking in graveyards and hanging out there in the, in the nighttime. I think it's, in thinking about death and thinking about how you will be after your death, it's somehow comforting in the same way that laughing at a funeral is comforting. So I, I don't think you, you have to take it only as being a joke. I think you can take it as being both a, serious, a semi-serious meditation with, um, you know, the fact that the guy is wandering in the in the wilderness, the the caveman, you know, just whistles past him, right? Doesn't just like that post, he's not afraid of it anymore. Of course, um, he doesn't even seem to notice that he exists, and that's that's right. part of what uh, Jose tells us that uh, nothing responds to him. Um, the lynx, which would have eaten his corpse were he mm -hmm. to have fallen in the desert there walks right by his hand and doesn't even acknowledge his existence. Um, the, the fellow you're calling a caveman, um, he's wearing ragged cloth, uh, I mean, uh, skins as garments, but he does have a torch, so at least he's gotten to the point of the invention of fire, um, does not greet him. And in theory, if Hosaib comes from an ancient Muslim uh, city called Carcosa, um, and he says that it's an ancient city. Um, it can't be have been a Muslim city before the seventh century of this era, since that's when Islam um, arises. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the the location could not have been inhabited much, 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 much earlier. Mm. And so the 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 title of the story, an inhabitant of Carcosa, could be the speaker who says that he came from Carcosa, it could also be this caveman that he sees um, mm. who also would have been an inhabitant of Carcosa because by the time you're done with the story, Carcosa is not, in fact, an inhabited city. Carcosa becomes a an emblem 
of cities that have passed into the realm of death. Mm-hmm. And that's what people want to do when they use a medium. They want to be able to pass into the realm of death. Um, one of the, the, the possible meanings of Carcosa, I don't say that it is, this may be a radical overreading, but I did notice in one person's commentary or speculation about the story that Carcosa may have been um, a new coinage by Beers based on the city Carcassonne in southwestern mm-hmm. France. Uh, Carcassonne is, in fact, a famous walled city, completely surrounded by walls. Uh, and it too has that feeling of being ancient and having been the center of the economic life of a large domain, which is no longer quite as vivid a domain. What is fascinating to me, and it was when I visited Carcassonne, is that tourists come to this place to see a medieval city and and walk its walls which are complete. And I have done that. But in fact, the walls were in ruins until in the 19th century, Viollet-le-Duc, a French architect, restored them fundamentally on the orders of the central government in order to create a tourist attraction in the southwest of the country in order to build up its economy. Carcassonne is as real a medieval city as Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, in fact, being much closer to the time when Carcassonne was actually restored, only a generation later um, or two, Beers n- understood that. He may have used that term Carcosa in order to uh, give us a small Carcassonne, because as you know, in Romance languages, that on ending says, well, this is a big one. You know, it's uh, it's uh, you, you just make something big that way, the way the any ending makes it small. Um, a raton is a big rat. Right. Uh, <laughs> so maybe Carcassonne is the real world and Carcosa is the small idea that always depended upon death. Uh, but if we work with it, it becomes a very interesting place to visit. For example, we can go to a seance. We can make up facts. Mm-hmm. We can do all kinds of things. Yeah, I like that reading. I, I also read um, that uh, in a biography of Pierce that uh, during the Civil War, he he was stationed in Coosa, or at the end of the Civil War, he, he was stationed in Coosa County, Alabama, where there had been a uh, massacre of <clears throat> of uh, donkeys. <laughs> uh, apparently, more than two hundred donkeys had been massacred um, as part of a, a ravaging of the South by Northern forces. Um, it was, you know, decried at the time, but apparently, it created quite a stink <laughs> and um, the stink of the dead. Uh, it was not a fun. Um, not a fun uh, place to be. No, it's clear that uh, that Beers, and this is clear in uh, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, uh, 
where a man has been captured uh, and is to be hanged. Uh, I'll remind uh, us of the story. Um, he's taken out onto the bridge. A plank is extended. The rope is put around his neck. He's a soldier captured near his own home, in fact. And when the uh, the plank is pulled back under him, from under him, he falls and the rope breaks. He swims away down the river that the bridge crosses with bullets whizzing at him. He manages to survive that. He gets off into the forest and he he runs and runs and runs and he's able to get back to his own home. And as he's about to embrace his wife, uh, this southern soldier, um, his head pops. It's the entire story was a wish fulfillment fantasy about going home at the moment of his death. But the death is inevitable and the fantasy is not a fulfillment at all. It's just a way of dealing with the anguish, the psychological anguish of the impending death. Mm. This it, Clearly, Bierce was very, very moved by all the death that he saw as a soldier and was, in fact, a, a, a prominent soldier. Um, an inhabitant of Carcosa is told from the viewpoint, the, the main body of it, not of somebody who has been involved in some political conflict or even self-defense, but rather somebody who has been fevered. Mm -hmm. And when he finally realizes, hey, wait a minute, where am I? What's going on? He remembers that his family had had to restrain him because he kept wanting to get out of his bed. He was so thirsty and hungry and he, he needed fresh air and he wanted to escape the city. Um, the city that he needs to escape, he finally does, he concludes. And that's how he gets out into this deserted landscape. Maybe the city is the carcass. Ha ha, I love it. You know, um, I, I, I wanted to correct you in just saying that it doesn't say his family restrained him. It says his attendants restrained him. I and now think, thinking of it that way, um, and when we finally see his, you know, his fate and why he's leaning up against this tree, he was unrestrained once the tree broke through into its his grave and pulled out his his um, his coffin or his uh, his tomb. He is free to wander the landscape and realize that the air that was outside and his uh, f f leaving the walls, he he can't go anywhere. He's dead, um, and this is this is wonderful. I, I I love that reading. There is one other thing I want to talk about, and that is uh, the appearance of the what I'm calling the caveman. <laughs> um, uh, it, it has this classic Beersian style of just discombobulation, uh, discombobulating the reader. I want to read this section and then uh, get your reaction. A moment later, a man's head appeared to rise out of the ground a short distance away. He was ascending the farther slope of a low hill whose crest had was hardly to be distinguished from the general level. His whole figure soon came into view against the background of gray cloud. And then I want to skip down to where he, even though he says, God keep you to this caveman, um, 
he, it says, he gave no heed, nor did he arrest his pace. But right before that, it said about the caveman, he walked slowly and with caution, as if he feared falling into some open grave concealed by the tall grass. What I'm thinking is that the, the caveman knows that this is an, a graveyard and there's many places where he might fall into that he's hunting through. And then the going back to the, the, the quote, good stranger, I continued, I am ill and lost. Direct me, I beseech you, to Carcosa. And then this is the line. The man broke into a barbarous chant in an unknown tongue, passing on and away. It seems to me that this is him whistling through the graveyard or past the graveyard. He's a- afraid of ghosts, right? Bierce is having it both ways. Ghosts are are unable to interact with human beings. Um, however, people are still afraid of ghosts, <laughs> even though they can't see them. And and by whistling past or whistling through the graveyard as he's hunting, um, and w- watching his step, minding not to step into any. Uh, graves that might collapse beneath him. He, he's, he's disconcerting the reader, uh, showing ghosts are unable to interact with people, but also showing that ghosts aren't real. I think this is wonderful. What do you think about that little discombobulating scene? I, I had thought that this fellow was simply another ghost from another era in Carcosa. That is, when Hussein says that it's an ancient city, um, we can go back further and get this fellow. But Hussein, who calls it an ancient city, is speaking to us, and we know that this is a much more modern time by the difference in the language that from mm-hmm. the first paragraph to all that follow. So we really have three different time periods for Carcosa. At this moment, when the medium is speaking, Carcosa has gone completely. All of its inhabitants are ghosts. And so it may be that uh, that your caveman figure is, is in a sense, whistling through the graveyard. Uh, since this is called a chant, he may be using his, his own religion to uh, do something apotropaic, you know, mm. keep, you know, ward off evil. Um, and it may be that he does it at just that moment because uh, Hussein becomes sufficiently insistent. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm ill. Direct me. I beseech you um, that this caveman feels like there's something there. Mm-hmm. So what we may be getting here is really an encounter between two ghosts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they both retain this fantasy that they are alive <laughs> uh, so the the caveman uses his religion and the uh, and Husayb uses his religion right and he even greets him with uh, salam aleichem mm-hmm. right? the, the, the peace of God be with you um, God rest you it says that's the, the, the rule of what you're to say um, it, it could be whistling through the graveyard, although I'm not sure that he recognizes it as a graveyard. I, I think he may just soon be, to be the presence of ghosts. Yeah, soon to be. He's he's going to recognize yes. that. There's I, another. Oh, go for it. There's another, to me, uh, useful comparison to make. When uh, Husayb 
sees the wind move the leaves and sees the inscription on the, uh, the, the gravestone. It reminded me instantly of another story that has almost exactly the same uh, notion. Uh, it's by Kafka. And in Kafka's story, the speaker um, winds up in a graveyard and he, he's looking up at this grave from at the headstone uh, from the ground. And he sees golden letters being inscribed on the headstone and they turn out to be his name. It's his own grave. There is an enormous difference. Well, there are many, but one enormous difference between the Kafka story, which is from some time before Kafka's death in the 1920s. So, uh, and it was, I think, unpublished at his, at his, during his life, but so it was written in the 19 teens or somewhere in the first quarter of the 20th century, clearly after an inhabitant of Carcosa. Um, he calls it, Kafka calls it a dream. And in fact, the title becomes a part of the story. It's just called a dream and we're never told A fell asleep and had a dream. We just, we then get the content of the dream. Mm -hmm. So what Kafka is saying is that the notion that your own death is foretold and that you in some sense need to confront it, that's a dream aspect of, re of our lives. Whereas what Beers is doing is suggesting that death is always a projective aspect of our lives. We see our deaths because of the way we project our understanding of the world. There is a spiritual aspect to our world because we make that world. In fact, as with the mediums, we want to make that world. I think Kafka and Beers are quite different. Beers is criticizing too easily accepting what we concoct, Kafka is putting much weight on the significance of what our premonitions reveal. But it's the same trope. But of course, there's always more to say.